Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. And that's when we came back and said, yeah, we, we need to do this. We need to do this for the industry. We need to do this for the state. This is this could lead to economic growth. We're, um, although we're part of the larger Kent State University system, we're a regional campus, and our goal is to serve our region. Appalachia Meets World, podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back. It's Will. And Neil. What's up, brother? Another day. How's it going? It's going good. How about you down there in the 606? Yeah, well, it's... It's been wet for a minute. We'll say that, but we're still uh, still getting along. It rained a lot yesterday, huh? Yeah, it's still raining. You know, some places have droughts, and you guys can't get past the rain. <clears throat> yeah, you know, a month ago we were begging for rain because all of our yards were brown, and now, you know, it's uh, like it's never going to stop. Any Appalachian news for me? Well, I mean, if you want me to jump right into it, I mean, the news is all about flooding. Yeah, the question of the week, I think, would be people have asked and reached out, you know, how, how can we support the flood efforts, the relief efforts in eastern Kentucky? Yeah, so our listeners that are listening, unless they've been under a rock for the last three weeks, you know, obviously catastrophic flooding in eastern Kentucky. You know, people from all over the United States have reached out to try to help. The president was here a couple of days ago. It's just a a really, really bad uh, event that occurred. Basically, what happened is they received three months worth of rain in about three and a half minutes. So it was an incredible amount of water that just had nowhere to go. Now uh, there's people suffering all over, all throughout eastern Kentucky. And there's multiple outlets that have stepped up and are helping I know the local schools here, local businesses here are all taking uh, donations and things like that. Uh, And then they're taking them over to places in eastern Kentucky that are set up to receive them. I think the influx of help has been massive from what I'm hearing. Um, But, you know, where is it going to be a month from now, two months from now? Because the rebuilding in eastern Kentucky is going to take a tremendous amount of time. Tremendous amount of time and tremendous amount of money. Yeah, it's it, like you said, it's not going to be tomorrow. Like all this support now is is wonderful, but it's going to take a sustained effort, months, years even, in some to rebuild some of these communities. Yeah, I know you and I have talked about it personally, but we we didn't really experience this. But for our entire life, we've always heard about the flood, the flood, the flood of '77, the flood of '77. That's what we grew up always hearing about 
personally, I think you may have been one. I don't know. I did. I have a picture of me getting out of a second story window into a boat out of our yeah. apartment window that we lived in at the time into a boat. Uh, <laughs> in, in downtown Pommel, Kentucky. Which, water. So I, I guess it's comparable, but it's kind of more uh, widespread, I guess, with multiple communities experiencing that same type of tragedy. So this will be a flood that's talked about. I mean, it'll be in the history books. Yeah, we still talk uh, about the flood of 77. And, and I hear, I've heard people lately say that their area floods all the time. And they're talking about these big municipalities that flood. I lived in Miami for a bit and it flooded all the time when it would rain hard. But the thing about it is in Eastern Kentucky, unless you've never been there, a lot of these communities are connected by bridges, just, you know, there's the only way in, the only way out is over a bridge. A lot of these communities, that's how they're connected. And this flood completely washed out a number of those bridges. I've heard people say that unless you go over there, you don't realize how much devastation there is. And all these communities are just trapped. There's no bridges. There's no roads. Houses have been washed away. It's just incredibly devastating. Yeah, well, all my friends, I haven't been over there. I've uh, made donations, material donations and and funding donations, but I've not been over there to to one of the towns that was impacted. But I did talk to a uh, high school football coach over there in uh, Knott County, Kentucky, that hadn't even had an opportunity to speak to his players in over two weeks. Because he had no electricity, he had no cell phone service, he had no way of reaching them. And, you know, I know that's a very small thing, but this time of year, it, you know, we talk about it all the time. Small towns that love their high school sport, you know, had, this guy hasn't even had a chance to talk to his team, much less get on a field and prepare them for <laughs> upcoming Friday nights. The amount of devastation is just incredible, and like you said, it'll be it'll be a long road. And uh, I know there's multiple outlets that you can give to. If you want to mention some of those, will if yeah. some of our listeners want to try to step up and and uh, give to these funds, I'm sure it would be much appreciated. People talk about living off the grid all the time. You know, these communities, like you said, that football coach there essentially living off the grid because they have no other choice. They can't get in touch with anyone. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, there are a number. I, I just wanted to mention, you know, with all this devastation, there has been kind of, I don't know if you call it a bright side, but you have seen the power and the impact of the people of Appalachia, the people of Eastern Kentucky. You know, they haven't waited for the outside resources to come in. They have started already helping their neighbors, helping each other. There are countless stories of individuals helping out in these impacted communities. I know the Handy Enterprises or, or Jason Handy there in, in London has put together a lot of resources through his business and sent them over. Shout out to him. There, there are just dozens of stories like that. I, I, I got contacted by Joe Dan Beavers, who, a friend of mine who lives in Western Kentucky, he had some contacts that were trying to get trailers to Jenny Wiley State Park so the people that lost their homes could <clears throat> live in those trailers part-time. All these stories, not 
only people from Eastern Kentucky, but people from people all over, just individual stories coming together. It just shines a light on, you know, the power of people and the, and the impact that Appalachians have for other Appalachians and, and vice versa. We are resilient. Like we always talk about, it'll, it'll come back. Yeah. Because the Appalachians will fight. And to help pave the way for a lot of these communities to come back, you mentioned some of the resources. I just wanted to get point out the foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky is, has put together a lot of time, a lot of resources. You can check them out. We'll put them in the show notes, but they have some flood relief. You can donate directly to them. I know they're providing a lot of assistance and a lot of information in regards to FEMA resources of how you can apply, of who can apply. I know they have their own crisis funds. Apple Shop in, in Eastern Kentucky, which also was affected by the flood. I think their building was flooded, <laughs> but they have come together and put together a, a ton of resources that you can check out on their website. We'll post. I know CEDIC has put together a lot of resources. One interesting one, they have arts in the community series where arts organizations can reach out and they're providing resources and damage assessment for those organizations specifically. The Mountain Association has put together a lot of resources and we're going to post all these in the show notes. I, I found a very interesting one in Blackie. You know, we had uh, the Kentucky Wildlands on, on not too long ago, and they're doing some great on the ground work too to provide support in these efforts. But one of the people that was on from Kentucky Wildlands said they were from Blackie, talked about how much they love Blackie. Well, Blackie has a little program, and this is just one example, but their local library there has put together this tool library. And so anyone that needs uh, generators, that needs shop backs, that needs pressure washers, et cetera, et cetera. They have all these tools, all these resources. You can go to the local library, check them out for free, go and use them as you, as you need, and then return them when you're done so someone else can use them. I just think that's genuine, authentic, innovative little programs that these communities have put together just to help the people of the surrounding, of the surrounding communities. So these are just some of the resources. Like I said, again, we will post all of these. I know Kentucky Sports Radio and the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce have a fund that you can donate to. They're raising a lot of money. I know that the uh, state has a fund, the Team Eastern Kentucky Flood Relief Fund. We'll post that. It's the state website. You can donate directly to that. I know even University of Kentucky, the, the basketball team, put, to, put on a telethon. University of Louisville basketball team put on a telethon and raised tons of a, a lot of money for these communities. I think you can still donate to those if, if possible. But again, we'll provide a lot of these in the show notes. They're just ways you can donate monetarily. There are ways you can donate your time. There's ways you can donate resources and materials, as Neil mentioned, to provide to some of the people that have been affected directly. So those are just some, Neil. I know you know more. I know you know more of a lot of individual stories of people helping out, boots on the ground, going in, helping supply resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, multiple opportunities. We could spend the entire show talking about all the different things going on to, to help aid the situation in, in Eastern Kentucky right now. 
But again, I, I wanted to reiterate, you know, once the cameras are gone, once the new cycle is faded, this this relief and this support doesn't need to stop. These communities are going to need this support for a long time. So don't forget about Eastern Kentucky, about Appalachia. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention, Will. Uh, it's going to be an ongoing thing. It's it's similar to what other areas of the world have experienced in hurricane situations. It doesn't come back easily. So years, years is what it'll take. And uh, we need to continue to support those communities. Yeah, definitely. Something to keep in mind, you know, in those hurricane communities, most of those people have hurricane insurance. A lot of these communities, individuals didn't even think about flood insurance. Yep, that's exactly right. I've heard multiple stories about that. No flood insurance. I mean, what do you do? But onward to the show. I did hear an interesting story, Will, before you get started. There's a uh, well-known drug dealer over in eastern Kentucky. His safe washed away in the flood. And supposedly there was upwards of $4 million cash in it. So there's people all over the place looking for this safe. You know this is happening. Yeah, this is this is the tale that's coming out of out of eastern Kentucky right now. That they <laughs> still have not found this safe. That'll but, be an ongoing legend. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. Be like the Goonies yeah. treasure hunt. There'll, yeah. there'll eventually be a map <laughs> of where the safe could possibly be located for for generations people will be searching for this safe i, I just wanted to get into what the program is is about today it's kind of a follow-up to what we had last week we wanted to keep this one a little shorter as well uh we, we tried to combine the two but we just thought it made more sense to split them up as last week we talked about you know from napa to appalachia from shine to wine of how the industry has grown throughout Appalachia and, and how we compared it to the epicenter of winemaking in the country, which is Napa Valley. But as we mentioned last week, there are several AVA regions throughout Appalachia that have made a name for themselves. And one of those regions is Northeast Ohio. And specific to Northeast Ohio, they have a program there through the Kent State University out of Ashtabula, which is in Appalachia, Ohio. And their programs are focused on winemaking. It's one of the few winemaking programs, certificate programs, associate degree programs in the country. And they have it here to help drive the industry of winemaking in this Appalachian part of Ohio. I just think it's a cool, innovative way to help drive the economy, to help support entrepreneurs, even apprentice a lot of these people you know offering apprenticeships working in wineries i think there are almost even in this small section of ohio and northeast ohio the appalachian part i think there are almost 30 40 50 wineries uh, that produce award winning wines yeah i'm looking forward to it will it should be interesting <laughs> i'm not a wine connoisseur and uh, i'll be all ears on this episode i'm sure I think it's interesting to hear about the industry and how it has grown in Appalachia. Absolutely. If we would have just known years ago, all those grapes we had in the, in the, in the backyard growing up, we would have known what we could turn them into, Will. <laughs> all right, let's get them on here. Let's do it. On the show today, we have 
Lori Lee, the Director of Enrollment Management and Student Services at Kent State University at Ashtabula, and Ed Trebitz, an award-winning winemaker with over 950 medals awarded, including 200 gold and double gold, who is the lead faculty member of the state's only and one, one of few in the country wine degree programs at KSU Ashtabula. Those programs are in viticulture, which is grape growing, and enology or winemaking. The programs are dedicated to educating future winemakers throughout Ohio or from outside of Ohio, but also dedicated to driving the growth of the industry in Appalachia, Ohio. So Lori and Ed, I just want to thank you for being on the program today. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. One of the questions that we ask all our guests, as most Appalachians are big on tradition, Neil and I, our family is big on tradition as well. One of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually we have way more appetizers than we actually have of the meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? So we call it the grazing table in our family nice. because there's always way more appetizers than there are, than there is food, or there's just always way too much food in our house. So we consider that a good thing. We do too. So um, I'm kind of famous for um, having more leftovers than I put out um, at meals sometimes. So, but boy, favorite appetizer. I, I have to default to spinach and artichoke dip because it's That's a popular answer. Do you dip with chips or bread or neither? I, I'm fine with either. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> All, right. All about the spinach and artichokes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have any favorites? So not really appetizers, a main dish that, so I'm Slovenian. My whole family's hundred percent Slovenian and we have Slovenian sausage and sauerkraut at every holiday. So whether it be Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, it's always there. So nice, nice. My, my wife my wife is Polish and she introduced me to pierogies. Yes. I introduced her to grits and she introduced me to pierogies. So, <laughs> there you go. Well, it's funny that you say that, Ed, because my family is half Polish and it's kolbasi and sauerkraut at every holiday meal. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, every holiday meal has kolbasi and sauerkraut. That's right. <laughs> Some don't know about the significance of winemaking in Ohio and the hit, the long history that it actually has. Some might even, even venture to say that it was the U.S. birthplace of winemaking, although some may argue that. I, I don't know for sure, but... <laughs> I, I think the state of Virginia would argue with that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But with, you know, outside of California, with three designated American viticulture areas solely in Ohio and two partially in Ohio, it's definitely a developing area for grapes and winemaking. So I wanted to ask you, can you maybe just briefly speak to the history of uh, winemaking in Ohio and maybe the significance behind that? So in Ohio, Southern Ohio especially, Nicholas Longfellow was planting Catawba grapes, which are native native to the area. And also Concord and Niagara are native grapes. So basically he was the start of the wine industry. And then up here in Ohio, or Northern Ohio, I'm sorry, Concord was very popular So a lot of the immigrants that came from Europe settled that area up there near Ashtabula 
originally start growing the Concord Niagara's and they were selling them to Welch's. So they started in the juice industry and grape industry before the wine industry. And then later on, they, the farmers weren't making any money. So that's basically when the wine industry started, when they converted from just selling juice to making wine. And that's how the industry basically started. So. And I guess it kind of, I think I read died off during prohibition, especially in Ohio, obviously. And, and as, as just recently, or I guess not recently, but over time has grown again in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask about that. You know, I mentioned the AVAs. There are over a little over 260 AVAs in the country, but over half of those are in California. Obviously, we talk about Appalachia on this podcast, and there are several throughout Appalachia, most significantly in Virginia. There are a lot in New York, but there's a large percentage in Appalachia, Ohio, that being Ashtabula. Grand River Valley is the ABA in Ashtabula. Can you just talk about the, the production? I think a majority of the wine production or the wine growth comes from Ashtabula, when you're talking about the state of Ohio, can you talk about the significance of that Grand River Valley AVA and the significance to the wine industry itself? So where the Grand River Valley is located, it's on a high plateau that overlooks Lake Erie. Well, Lake Erie is its own climate in its own. So the lake will stay warmer later into the fall and winter season which adds some protection, then it's cooler as we get into the summer months. So it has its own microclimate. And because the Grand River Valley is high point there, and because of the river valley, the cold air will settle down into that river, which protects our vines from frost and um, winter injury, except when you have a polar vortex, you know, like we did in 13 and 14, <laughs> nothing can protect that. But in normal years, that's what happens. So You have your own winery, right? Ed, is that where your winery is located? A little west of that. I'm in an urban area now, but where I started off, Debonet Vineyards, yes, that was the heart of the Grand River Valley, where most of the grapes are grown in Ohio. Our podcast is grounded on place and perspective, and it's all about, you know, forming your identity and where you form your identity. I guess grapes kind of have the same same ident- identity formation, depending on where, which AVA they're located in. So what, what type of grapes are specific to the Grand River Valley? Well, AVA? we're lucky because we can grow most anything there. The hardest grapes to grow are vinifera. So like your Merlots, your Chardonnays, Pinot Gris, Cabs, those can be very difficult if you're not in a good ABA, but we're lucky. We can grow most any grape there, including hybrids and then Labrusca. So Labrusca, your Native American, and hybrids are breeds that they specifically would take two brood, you know, two different grape varieties, put them together to make them more cold hardy, disease resistant. So yeah, we are lucky in that AVA, we can grow most anything. And as I was talking, the polar vortex that happened, there's nothing you can do about that. Right. In normal winters, we're pretty well protected. So we can grow most anything. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I, you, you know, obviously we wanted to have you on the show to talk about the significance of, of winemaking in Appalachia, Ohio, but also about your programs that I mentioned in the introduction. I really want, we really wanted to focus on the viticulture and the enology programs that you have, the degree programs that you have there at Kent State University at Ashtabula. Can you just talk about those programs, how they started, why they started, and the significance behind those? Well, so we launched our programs back in fall of 2011. So in early 2010, we were approached by Donnie Winchell, who's the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. And she had heard about this national grant program, um, which is funded by NSF, which is called VESTA. Um, which is the Viticulture Enology Science and Technology Alliance. Wow, that was quick. Right off the top of yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's 12 years of that. Yeah, that's not an easy so, one. So we were approached in early 2010 by the Ohio Wine Producers Association, and she said there's this education program um, that's partially supported by the National Science Foundation, and I think we could really use this in Ohio. The first VESTA conference that I attended was in May of 2010, and that's when we came back and said, yeah, we, we need to do this. We need to do this for the industry. We need to do this for the state. This is this could lead to economic growth. We're, um, although we're part of the larger Kent State University system, we're a regional campus, and our goal is to serve our region. And so we started in 2000, summer of 2010 getting the curriculum pulled together. We were able to get approval for the curriculum in 2011, early, like, well, actually, we received university approval in early 2011, and then we received state approval in July of 2011. And then we launched the two associate degrees, one the associate degree in enology and the associate's degree in viticulture in fall of 11. That was really how we got started. And we put about, I think, six students through the first set of classes. And, you know, we just keep kind of continuing to grow. In 2018, we took a look at our students and we took a look at who was coming through the program and realized we had a lot of students coming to us as second career students. They already had bachelor's degrees or in some cases, PhDs and other things. And they were coming back to us because they were ready for a change in their life. And so we, in 2018, we were able to launch what's called a certificate. It's basically very similar to the associate's degree. It's all of the same technical coursework that's included in the associate's degree but it takes out all the extraneous coursework. So it takes out all the, what we call Kent Core, which is your coursework that's focused, you know, your math, your English, your humanities, your fine arts, takes all your Kent Core out and really focuses in on the technical coursework. And so we launched those in 2018 and those have proven to be popular, particularly with our post-undergraduate students. It's been a good experience for us as of uh, this last spring, we've graduated 45 students total, but that includes um, actually 53 different degrees. So some of our students will actually get both the enology and the viticulture degree. So we've awarded 53 different degrees. Five of those are certificates and the rest of them have been actual associates. Do your students go on to work in the industry? Do they go on to open their own wineries or is it combination? So so we have both. I'll talk a little bit about our students that go to work in the industries, and then I'll let Ed talk about some of the wineries that, that have kind of occurred because of us. 
We have more job opportunities in the state than I have graduates to provide people. With those 45 graduates, every single one of them, if they were interested, could have a job in the industry. We have just a small handful of them that have chosen to pursue other paths. They've gotten, like we've had a couple of home winemakers that came to do the coursework just because they were interested in improving their product, but they weren't interested in getting in the industry. We have a couple people who've gone through the program that have that are that are kind of in that waiting mode, like they're approaching retirement. And when they retire, they want this to be their retirement job. But then we also have a number of students who've gone through the program who've launched their own wineries. And I'll let Ed talk about a couple of them. So one of the new and larger wineries, it's in Broadview Heights. It's called Michelangelo. Our student, Randy Roberts is now the head winemaker there. They're about at 20,000 cases. It's just a beautiful winery. The two brothers who started it were bakers. They owned their, they owned their own bakery for 13 years and decided to get into the wine industry. Another place is down in Southern Ohio. It's called Vin Barrage. Jennifer Boyle, she is now the winemaker and part owner, I think. Um, and she's doing some really good things down there. That's off of, we have Brad Indow, who started at a winery in Ashtabula County. He is now on the west side of Cleveland at a place called Paper Moon. Those are the larger ones, I'm trying to think. Those are our graduates, and they're doing great things at those wineries, and they're all head winemakers in those positions. Joe Glista, him and his father own a winery down in Youngstown, south of Youngstown, Ohio. So they started that from ground zero and it's on a lake and um, just beautiful. It's incredible. Grown quite a bit since Joe graduated from our program. Yes. And yes. Through, through your curriculum, through your programs, do you have hand, do, you, do they get hands-on experience throughout the program? Do you have your own winemaking uh, facility there on campus? We do so not. We partnered with Lorello Vineyards. So the students have some opportunities to work, you know, make wine there. But part of our program and what's unique about it is the students have so many practicum hours. So they have to get out into the industry and they have to work for a vineyard. They have to work with a winery to gain these hours in order to get their degree or their certificate. So, and as you get into the second year, the hours become more, more intense. And so they get a lot of good practical experience in the industry. Neil and I, as we spoke before, are both from Eastern Kentucky. And so it's kind of blasphemy to talk about anything besides bourbon. But, you know, bourbon, you don't just say you're going to make bourbon and then the next year have your bourbon. You know, you have to wait five, seven, ten years before you can even, you know, produce I'm just not as familiar with winemaking. Is it is it the same way? Do you have to wait a period of time or can you grow the grapes as soon as the grapes are grown, then produce the wine? Yeah, so it normally takes four to five years for a grapevine to produce a good crop. So you have that waiting time. Now, in the production of wine, whites, you're, it takes around six to eight months to get them into the bottle from fermentation. Reds usually 10 to 12 or even longer, depending on the style you want. If you want a fruitier style, 
newer wine, you can go early. But most reds like cabs, you're, you got to wait a year or two or even longer for them to develop. I did want to ask, you know, you mentioned Vesta, and I'm not going to try to, to say what, it's, what, what it stands for since you already did. But you, I just wanted to point out that you just recently, as of last week, hosted the, the National Vesta Conference at Kent State University at Ashtabula, which I think is a pretty extraordinary thing to do uh, for a university such as yourself to host the national conference there. Can you talk about that a little bit? So the VESTA program as a whole started out being based in in grape and wine education. That was its focus. Um, As things have um, grown and expanded, the focus has really turned into, it's now a, the VESTA is now a resource center. So the idea is that in addition to coordinating our own curriculum amongst the partner schools, we also are providing a lot of information, a lot of curriculum and becoming sort of a hub of information for any school in the country that's offering grape and wine education. And so this was the first year that the VESTA National Summit was focused on the resource center instead of just on curriculum development. And so the curriculum conference over the years has slowly no longer become a curriculum conference and is now an actual summit. So due to COVID, we had, um, we had, ho- we had originally planned to have about 75 to 100 people from across the country. We ended up at about 45 just because people, there's some people out there still not willing to travel. There's some universities out there still not, you know, sending people out just because, you know, because of the different factors. But we had about 45 people um, from all over the country, industry members, as well as educational institutions, both existing partners in the VESTA consortium, as well as people that are thinking about, you know, whether how they want to be involved moving into the future. And so they were here for almost six days, six full days. They came in Tuesday afternoon, they left Sunday afternoon. So it was, um, we were very lucky in that we were able to host it um, at the lodge in Geneva on the lake. If you're not familiar, I highly recommend you take a look. Um, It's right on Lake Erie and it was a fantastic venue. They provided us fantastic service throughout the week. And we were able to spend a whole day out actually touring in the industry. So we had three different tour groups that went out. We had a tour group that went out that visited viticulture sites all around the Grand River Valley region. We had a tour group that went out that visited winemaking sites because sometimes a lot of times two, those two things happen in conjunction with each other, but there are some wineries without vineyards and there's some vineyards without wineries. So we had those two tours and then we had a third tour. Um, there's a definite interest in that group in brewing and distilling as well as in winemaking. And so um, Ed actually took some, some tours out um, on that day out into some of our local breweries and distilleries. So it was, it was exciting. It was great to have that many people here a nice cross-section of interests and, and knowledge from across the country, literally from California to New York. I think most people will be surprised of the industry that's here. And it's, so it's always important to bring people in to let them see what's actually here. We so. did hear a lot of that that week. We did hear, you know, people were really, people who had never been to Ohio and had never, didn't really have any idea of what the Ohio industry really was were really impressed with the quality of what they were seeing and the quality of what they were tasting. 
I was going to ask, can either one of you maybe speak to some of the misconceptions that people have of Ohio and the wine industry here? What don't people know about the Ohio wine industry? Well, would the top of the list of misconceptions be it's all sweet, Ed? Is that yeah. <laughs> all ice wine? <laughs> well, it, yeah, that, there is something. Sweet table wine. I know, yeah. but I do think the biggest misconception is really that we're just producing Concord and Catawba and people don't understand how much vinifera is really grown in Asheville County, as well as in the state as a whole. Mm-hmm. Ed would really be better to speak to those misconceptions, but I hear that all the time from people I know that, you know, they live in the Cleveland area and they don't, they're like, oh, I don't want Ohio wine. And I'm like, you haven't tasted good Ohio wine. There's a right. lot of amazing Ohio wine out there and it's not all ice wine, although there is some amazing ice wine. I, I like the word that you used earlier, quality. I, I don't think people mm-hmm. really know about the quality of wine that's produced in Ohio. No, they don't. A lot of our Ohio wineries are starting to win awards at a national and international level. And I don't necessarily have them committed to memory, but I know we, we're starting to see a lot of awards that are coming out of international wine competitions for different wines in not all sweet wines. Ed himself won a San Francisco Chronicle Best of Show Award for ice wine back in 13. 13? 13, yeah. There's a lot of very high quality wines that are coming out of this region and people just don't realize it. Now, I w- and Ed can speak to this better, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily grapes you've heard of or they're not necessarily things that you've tasted before, but they are high quality wines that your most refined wine drinkers would enjoy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of the hybrids we grow, people have never heard of. Uh, Maybe in the Midwest they have, but get any further than that, they're like, what's a Chamberson grape? You know, (laughs) so Chamberson is a red grape, very deep, rich. And um, as a table wine varietal itself it's very good and we're making good quality wines like that and we know that you know we those winemakers winery owners who are entering them in these national competitions are scoring very high Um, and that's based on quality you know it doesn't matter what the grape is as long as it's quality it's going to do well as a follow-up to that i'll ask you both maybe ed aside from your own wine do you have a favorite wine in ohio or winery in ohio and then maybe a favorite wine outside of ohio that you uh well i would say my own but (laughs) (laughs) i would say most of the wineries in the grand river valley are making phenomenal whites so chardonnays pinot gris Rieslings. Reds are very difficult. Every five or six years, you'll have a fantastic Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, but we can do it. It's just not going to happen every year. That's just the climate up here. It's always up and down. And then ice wines, I think this region here is one of the best. And I know that because Ferrante, Debonet, Kasichik, Gervasi, they're all producing world-class you know, ice wines. They really are. I mean, I have many favorites. Right. Um, you know, Ferrante right now, I think their Pinot Grigio is the one of the best. Laurentia makes a phenomenal steel fermented Chardonnay. M. Sellers is making very good Pinot Noir and Cabs. Lori, do you have any favorites? So... I would not have the world's most sophisticated palate. I I will preface this conversation with that. But yeah, I have all kinds of favorites. 
The one thing I think I've learned the most since I started doing this program, I was always a wine drinker, but I was not a terribly discerning wine drinker. It's really about the situation, um, what I want to drink. It's not all just, I'm, I know so many people that are like, I'm a dry red wine drinker. And I am a dry red wine drinker, but I'm also, I also like a nice semi-sweet Riesling. And I also like, I mean, there's just, it, it depends on the meal that I'm eating, not from a food and wine pairing perspective, but more, um, I call it summer deck wine. Summer deck wine is a lot different than, than winter fancy dinner wine. I really do drink across the spectrum, which I did not do before I became involved in this program. One of the wines that I was introduced to through this program that I had never had before is a white wine that, well, the one I was introduced to was out of Ferrante Winery, but it's called Gewürztraminer. Um, and it's a German grape that they're growing here in Northeast Ohio. And now I've been introduced to Gewürz from across the state and across the country. And I can say that it will, I will hands down always love a Gewürz, but mm. I'm also a big Pinot Noir fan. I'm a big Chamberson fan. In fact, I might, might have a five gallon carboy of Chamberson brewing in my, brewing at home right now. So it is, I think so much of it is really about kind of being adventuresome and trying different things. And I try a lot that I, I would never drink again, sadly, but I also try a lot that I would never have known was out there. There's a, there's a lot of great wine out there. One of my favorite Cab, um, cab Savs in the world came, comes from Marco Vineyards, which is in Conneaut, Ohio. I, I can't describe it. It's just one of my favorite wines in the world. But I, you're not drinking it on your summer deck because you're not going to enjoy it when it's 95 degrees outside. And, and I know the tourism industry there in Ashtabula, they have, you know, wine tours. You can tour the wineries. Do you all have any plugs that you could let our listeners know if they're visiting that area, uh, where they could go, who they could contact in regards to touring the wineries? I mean, it's definitely something to do in the region, and it's an incredible appeal for the region. There's two great resources findohiowines.org is the Ohio Grape Industries Committee's website for the state, and it lists wineries by region. So you can look at different wineries up by region. And then also the Ohio Wine Producers Association, which is again, statewide organization and just www.ohiowines.org. And they are a membership organization. So they have wine trails on their website that list the members in the different regions that are part of the a wine trail. So this particular region is the is called the Vines and Wines Wine Trail, but there are wine trails all around the state that people can follow. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gives them an idea of different places that they can go and visit within the region that they're in. There's seven wine trails in the state of Ohio right now that are all part of the Ohio Wine Producers Association. This region, which is the Vines and Wines to um, the Shores and Islands, down south in the Ohio River Valley, uh, the central part of the state. So there's a lot of different tourist options. And so you can kind of look at where you're visiting in the state or the region to kind of choose your choose where some different options are to go. And then I will, you know, I'll put in another plug for the Lodge just because they've been so, so supportive of our program over the years, but the Lodge of Geneva on the lake, they run a shuttle to the different, so you don't have to, um, you don't have to drive it yourself. And then there's also a couple of other shuttle companies in the area that run specific wine shuttles. And there are almost 50 or so wineries in 
Grand River Valley or in Ashtabula region? I would say right, Lauren. It's that's pretty close. I looked numbers up before we got on this morning and I came up with 38, but I don't think that's enough. I think there's some new ones out there. Yeah. I know there's some that are in the works, but that's just here in the Grand River Valley. Right. Region here. And then if you go to the state of Ohio, Ed was saying when we spoke earlier that it's we're we're over 375 in the wineries in the state of Ohio now, and we should surpass 400 by the end of the year. Yeah, so definitely check out the covered bridges in Ashtabula and the definitely Grand. check out the covered bridges in Ashtabula. Absolutely, and you and that's easy to do when you're visiting wineries because the covered bridges tend to be a little off the beaten path, and the wineries tend to be in agricultural areas. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. I also wanted to ask you about the future of your degree programs. Do you have? Do you see growth, or, or what? What? What's in store for the future of your viticulture and enology programs there? We do see growth. Um, we are taking, we take interest calls almost every day of the week of people that are, are thinking about starting the program. Uh, we have had full classes the last, I would say probably five years, six years, where we've, mm-hmm. you know, a good cohort of students going through together through the coursework. And we do see growth. And I think we see an expanded opportunity to get students more hands-on learning experience. We have, uh, as Ed mentioned earlier, a relationship with Lorello Vineyards where they help our students out by giving them space to do work in um, and to help with their production. And then Lorello's also produces wine under uh, under private label for us. And so we actually have four Kent State Ashtabula wines that are on the market, which is nice. And those were, our students were involved in the production and bottling of those wines. Very cool. So it's a unique opportunity for them. Have you, just a curiosity question, have you seen any growth because of the pandemic? You know, a lot of things declined because of the pandemic, but I can imagine that second, with second careers, with people thinking about getting outside, that your degree programs may have grown over that period. I don't know. When I started in the industry, so 20 years ago, there were 75 wineries in Ohio. We saw a growth during the recession back in, was that 08, 09? And then we saw growth over COVID. It's the old saying, people drink in good times, (laughs) but even more in bad times. And our industry is recession-proof, basically. You know, during that recession, it grew because people found security in our industry because a lot of the wineries didn't miss a beat. And over COVID, a lot of wineries did very well because people didn't have anything to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, and they could sit outside. They yeah. could, yes. In, they could sit on a patio at a winery, which felt a lot less scary than in a restaurant, at a right. tasting room. Right. So where can our listeners find your programs? It's kent.edu slash ashtabula slash wine. And they can find information on all four, both associate degrees and both certificates there. And they can always reach out. My contact information is right on the website. They can always reach out to me to ask questions. There's a lot of information out there. Before I let you two go, we have a couple questions that we ask all our guests. Most people don't know that Ashtabula is in 
Appalachia, Ohio. This is a question that we ask all our guests, and I want to ask you both. What's the first thing you think about, the first thing that just comes to mind when I say the word Appalachia? Mountains. I'll go with rural. We hear mountains a lot. I'm surprised you didn't say grapes or wine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, we may have been exposed to the grapes and wine from all over the country, so that's probably it's not our first on our mind. Yeah. The other question that we ask everyone, because we, you know, we speak to people inside Appalachia, outside Appalachia, really, we try to bring those two worlds together to compare and contrast to see how regions are different to see how they're the same. But one of the the last question that I'll ask you is, like I said before, we ground our podcast on place and perspective. Place is really important to Appalachians. Place is really important to us. So we wanted to ask you just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? I call Ashfield County home. I I like to tell people that I married my way into the county. <laughs> Husband was place bound due to his job when we were married 21 years ago. And so I had been in the area. I was I actually grew up on the west side of Cleveland and I um, had been in the area in and out. I had done some volunteer work in this region and which is actually how I met my husband. And so um, his career was place bound. And so I moved into the county and we've we've bought a home here and raised uh, two sons here. Well, we're still, they're 16 and 18. We're not done raising them. We may have a long way to go, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we we call this home and I appreciate the, the many different aspects. I mean, you, first of all, it's very hard to ignore the lake, which is right north of our campus and, and all along the northern um, edge of the Grand River Valley and Ashfield County. And, you know, Lake Erie is just an amazing um, asset to the region. And um, we love the area and it's where I'm happy to call this home. I would say Northeastern Ohio is my home. I grew up in Menor, Ohio, which is Lake County. Went to college in Cuyahoga County. <laughs> and now I live in Geauga and worked in Ashtabula and worked in Ashtabula <laughs> County. That's the so. gamut. Yes. And I've never left. I don't think I'll ever leave. I don't know. I I love it here. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. I I greatly appreciate your time. Uh, I feel like the programs that you have are really important and really important for people to know about. I think it's great for uh, the industry, but great for the region as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for your time. So, Neil, a great follow-up episode to last week, you know, from Shine to Wine. Here we are to driving the wine industry in Appalachia, Ohio. Yeah, just amazing, Will. Amazing to me that this is going on in Appalachia. To be honest, when I think about wine, as most people, I think about California. To have this going on here in Appalachia is just amazing, and Like I said, I was trying to take it all in, be a sponge today. The programs that we have, that they have that are producing, you know, award-winning winemakers in the region. I I just think it's a great way to help to boost an industry and help to establish an industry that has been around for a long time, but taking it to the next level. So again, we want to thank them for being part of this episode and appreciate what they're doing there at Kent State University in Ashtabula, a little piece of Appalachia, Ohio. Absolutely. And now I'm more intrigued with Kent State. Or at least 
you need to visit the wineries, right? Yeah, take a tour yeah. for sure. The way for they were sure. talking, the 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 dozens of wineries that they had over there. I've actually been, you know, to that area as I mentioned in the episode, and it is really nice. A lot of it's on the water, but definitely worth a visit. I was getting ready to say I've, I've driven through the area as well as you mentioned, but it's not what you expect. It's pretty, it's pretty unique. I know we have typically have an app biz of the week this week. We're going to dedicate our app biz to the flood relief efforts. So check out our show notes. There are multiple ways that you can donate your time, your material, your money to these resources, to these efforts, these ongoing efforts. So we just want to, Dedicate this app biz of the week to that. And I would just mention, Will, one more time. I know it seems insignificant to do, if you if you think to yourself, I can only donate one case of water. But right now, that's very significant. So, you know, next time you go to Lowe's and you see those donation centers, buy a case of water and put it in there. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Neil. If every person that walked in Lowe's just donated one case of water just think how many cases of water could get there yep absolutely it's been a good one man good talking to you again hopefully our uh listeners can take something from it and i'm looking forward to our upcoming episodes in the next couple weeks me too kind of getting back into a regular routine next week i'm sure our listeners will enjoy our guests so i'm looking forward to that i don't know if you want to give them a give them a sneak, sneak peek or not Go ahead. You know what's coming up here in the next couple of weeks. We've talked about it a lot. We've had people on in the past in regards to it. It's almost football season. So why not have a state championship coach on with us? Almost football season. So if you're interested, tune in. Justin Haddix will be on next week. And uh, we're looking forward to talking with him. The importance of small town athletics. You know, I got a story. We got a story about him where he currently is, and his efforts in regards to the flood relief as well. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. All right. I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long. Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong And in the mountains again